welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, December 5th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be blessed and acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, four Christmases ago, my family came out to California to celebrate the holidays with us. This is me and my two brothers, Ed and Andy. Uh, spoiler alert, we are not uh, Batman and uh, who was that? Uh, the Green, Green Lantern. Uh, along with my father, Tom, my dad is the one uh, who is wearing the, the brown uh, sweater. He is the historian of the family. In fact, that's what he did as a profession. He worked as a historian for the National Park Service. And he also has a passion for genealogy. In fact, he's traced our family tree back. Are you ready? To the 5th century. He's not a professional genealogist, but it's about as good as you can get, right? My 48th great-grandfather was Childebert, the king of Paris, born in 496 in Realms, Neustria, and died on December 23, 558 in Paris, France. My 37th great-great-grandfather was Charlemagne, emperor in the 8th century of the Holy Roman Empire and the king of the Franks. His son, Louis I, was also known as Louis the Pious, Another relative of mine. Fast forward to the 17th century. My seventh great-grandfather was George Barrow, who was born in 1670 in Plymouth Colony, Massachusetts. In fact, this is his actual gravestone, by the way. Well, more and more people these days are looking and spending time researching their family tree. And there's a lot of resources now that are available to us to do that. Genetic testing companies like Ancestry, DNA, 23andMe, and Family Tree DNA have exploded in recent years. Uh, the current Ancestry.com website invites people to, quote, bring the generations together this holiday over your family story. And they cite 27 billion records and 100 million family trees. That's amazing. Well, welcome to the second Sunday in Advent, the four weeks of expectant waiting and preparation for the coming of Christmas. Now, we're in a series called The First Christmas. It's based off of a book by the same title by biblical scholars Marcus J. Borg and John Dominic Crossan. And today, my friends, you are in for a rare treat because we're going to be discussing biblical genealogy. I know, everybody's favorite, the begats, right? Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. Trust me, if it normally puts you to sleep, it'll only slightly put you to sleep today. Yeah. You might even be excited, who knows, right? For starters, though, we're going to have to adjust our expectations about what we're about to take a deep dive into. Don't think of it as a 23andMe DNA search through Jesus' history. Don't even think of it as a, a few hours exploring Ancestry.com. Carmelo Alvarez in Feasting on the Gospels writes this. Matthew is a storyteller and interpreter of God's saving acts, not a chronicler. His style moves between the facts selected to prove Jesus' origin and a narrative that interprets theologically that Jesus is 
the Messiah. Borg and Crossan say that Jesus' genealogies are minimal history, but maximal theology. I love that. Minimal history, maximal theology. Now, contrary to popular uh, culture's understanding, there isn't one unified Christmas story when it comes to Jesus' birth. In fact, there are two separate and very distinct accounts in the Bible. On the one hand, we have the Gospel of Matthew, and the other the Gospel of Luke. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, an angel tells Joseph that his fiancée, a young girl named Mary, is pregnant with God's son. Magi, or wise men from the east, come searching for the child. They don't arrive until the boy is already two years old. And a power-hungry king named Herod wants Jesus dead, which even sends the Holy Family to Egypt for a bit of a sojourn. In Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel comes directly to Mary and tells her that she is with child from the Holy Spirit. She and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem for a royal census. They give birth in a lowly manger. Shepherds are the first to hear the good news of great joy from a choir of angels. And Jesus is presented in the temple, uh, as was the Jewish custom. We have two gospels, two stories. In fact, two very different stories in the details that they lift up. Now, both of the Gospels have, uh, as part of their Christmas stories, Jesus' genealogy. Uh, But as you might guess, they're also quite different in how they approach it. Now, we can start with location, where it appears in each Gospel story. Matthew puts his genealogy at the very beginning of the Gospel, Matthew 1, verse 1 says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke adds his genealogy uh, when Jesus is an adult and about to start his public ministry. He says in Luke 3, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph. And then off he goes with father and son connections. Now, each Gospel writer also has a different uh, direction, if you will, in the way they take Jesus's genealogy. Matthew starts off at the very beginning with Abraham. That's part of the Jewish tradition of starting with your oldest relatives and working back down to Jesus. Luke, however, follows the Greek pattern and begins with Jesus and then works his way back in time. You might be surprised to find out that uh, they don't list the same names in the genealogies uh, when it comes to Jesus' relatives, not even close. I mean, for starters, they list different grandpas for Jesus. In Matthew, Joseph's father is Mathan. In Luke, it's Heli. There's also a big turn after David as well. Jesus, in in, in Matthew's line, uh, runs from David through Solomon. But in Luke, it runs from David through Nathan, the prophet. The total list in Jesus' genealogy for Matthew is 42 ancestors. There's three sets of 14 generations. Luke just lists a straight-out 77. And many of the people in Luke's account aren't mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible, which might be considered a problem if we were trying to read it as a historical document. But remember... Matthew and Luke were all about theology. What was that phrase? Uh, Minimal history, maximal theology. So what does this say about God and about 
who Jesus truly is? Well, let's start with Matthew by looking at that number 14. Remember, he has a three generations, three uh, 14 generation segments. Matthew 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, numbers were extremely important in the Bible. They often mean more than simply whatever that number actually means by itself. For starters, number 14 is two times the sacred number of seven. Seven in the Bible means completeness or wholeness. And it begins, of course, in the story of the creation when God completed uh, the earth in seven days. Well, another way of looking at the number 14 is through Hebrew numerology. Every Hebrew consonant has a different number equivalent. For example, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, is equal to one. Bet is two, Gimel three, Dalet four, He five, and Vau six. Uh, the great King David's name, if looking only at the consonants D, V, and D, because in ancient Hebrew they did not uh, put vowels in. Uh, there's two Ds and a V, that's four plus four plus six, that equals 14. Now let's go back one more time to Luke, or to Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 17. There's that sections of 14 generations go from Abraham, the great patriarch, to David, the great king, from David to the Babylonian exile. Now, the exile was the most disruptive and significant history experience for Israel. And then from Babylon to Jesus, another 14 generations. Borg and Cross and comment that the early readers of Matthew's gospel would have uh, been expecting something equally significant as the Babylon captivity to occur after the next 14 generations. And of course, that equally significant event, the birth of Jesus. They call it parabolic mathematics, math that tells a story. By the way, any high school students out there, I would invite you to use that on the next time you do not get 100% on your math exam. Just say, I was doing parabolic mathematics. You know, it's biblical, right? Uh, high concentration of theology. Ben Witherington in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on Matthew says this. This is clearly a royal and so edited genealogy meant to make certain key theological points about the significance of Jesus. As such, it should not be evaluated the same way one would evaluate a normal, normal modern genealogical record. Well, one of the really cool things about uh, Matthew's genealogy that sets it apart from Luke's genealogy is the presence of women. Now, neither Matthew nor Luke seem to be concerned that it takes two parents to actually have a child. In fact, one commentator I read this week joked that Matthew and Luke seem to think that all you need in order to have a male child is a male dad. And then it just kind of goes from there, right? No, Mac. Matthew actually uh, mentions five women in Jesus' genealogy. We have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, called the wife of Uriah, and Mary. Now, if any women were going to be named in Jewish history, one might have expected the, the matriarchs, right? The, the Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, those wonderful women. We have such amazing stories from the book of Genesis. But nope, 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 none of those significant women are mentioned. I love how the women's Bible commentary describes these five ladies. Tamar, who posed as a prostitute and seduced uh, her father-in-law, Judah. 
Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who betrayed her city to the Hebrews. Ruth, the Moabite, who married Boaz after placing him in a compromising position one night on the threshing floor. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. And Mary, who became pregnant before her marriage to Joseph, but while betrothed to him in a legally binding relationship. All five of these women, as the Women's Bible Commentary states, were, quote, removed from traditional domestic arrangements, right? They were unmarried, separated from their spouse, widowed, or even prostitutes. And yet, all five exhibited, as the authors note, a higher righteousness, That these were women who acted in a manner not accepted by or expected by the social mores of their times in order to fulfill divine purposes, right? So they they rose above what people expected those kind of women to do and were part of God's divine plan. Just like Jesus rose above what was expected of him to lead people into a new direction. More than one commentator noted that the inclusion of these women was a strategic stroke of theological insight. All except Mary were non-Israelites, and all are part of Jesus' heritage, presumably all included into this history by the wide and amazing grace of God. You can look in Deuteronomy 23.3. It says that no Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of God. And it goes up to like 10 generations or whatever. And yet here is Ruth the Moabite, a forerunner of Jesus. God is always expanding the boundaries that we humans concoct. In fact, at the end of Matthew's gospel, it sees Jesus himself commissioning disciples to go take the good news. Where? Out to just Israel? No, to out to the whole world. And you can look back to this genealogy and say, oh, yeah, because his ancestors were from all over the world as well, right? No one is excluded from God's kingdom. Raymond Brown writes, it is the combination of the scandalous or irregular union and and the divine intervention through these women that explains best Matthew's choice in this genealogy. All right, let's move over to Luke's account of his genealogy for Jesus. And I apologize uh, for not having read it also during our scripture reading time. I figured reading one genealogy in its entirety was about what everyone could handle. And everyone would be asleep if I went for a second helping through Luke's gospel, right? Luke 3.23, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli. Now, as both Matthew and Luke mentioned that uh, Mary became with child by the Holy Spirit, this could be a little dig here, right? You could see it as, as if Luke was saying, well, he wasn't really the father of Jesus. But that's probably not the case. As John Carroll mentions in his New Testament library commentary on Luke, in the public view, Jesus is Joseph's son. And by welcoming Jesus into his household, Joseph has taken in him into his family line. You see, in Hebrew culture, once a child was adopted, they immediately became part of that family tree. Well, the same word that Luke uses here to describe when Jesus began his work, that's the same word used in Genesis for in the beginning. In fact, Borg and Crossan note that the phrase here literally says... Jesus beginning. 
So it, this isn't just the next thing on Jesus's list. No, this was a new beginning. Luke sees Jesus as the new Adam. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Now, why is this important? Well, we have to go to the end of Luke's genealogy for Jesus. And Luke starts with Jesus, and he works his way back through his ancestors so that at the very end we get son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Adam was in the beginning, but Jesus, now in whom all things are made new, he is the new, the true son of God. And remember, Luke starts, uh, Luke is putting Jesus' genealogy here, uh, not at the start of his life like Matthew did, but at the start of his ministry. So then that says, okay, well, what took place just before that and just after that? Why was it important to put it here? Well, immediately before this genealogy, Jesus is baptized. And what happened when Jesus was baptized? God, as he came out, uh, said this, you are my son, the beloved with whom within you I am well pleased. So it anchors with God saying, you are my son. Then we have the genealogy. And what happens after the genealogy? Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, where the devil asks him twice, if you are the son of God, then... Da, 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 da. Well, Luke wants everyone to be very clear about one important point. There is no if that Jesus is the Son of God. Seventy-seven names are recorded in Luke's genealogy. Seventy-seven. That's two sevens, twice perfection. Jesus is the culmination of God's perfect plan to redeem the world, according to Luke. Now, I want to wrap this up with the question, uh, so what, right? So what? I mean, let's face it, Luke lists Jesus as descendant from Adam. And if we all wanted to do that, we could all go back to that same place, right? If, if the story is correct that there was Adam and Eve and everyone came forth from that, what's so special about that? Matthew brings Jesus through Abraham. That's something that's held in common with every other Jew in the world, past or present. What's so uniquely special about that? Well, I'm going to bring up one other name, and that is Caesar Augustus. Matthew and Luke are presenting genealogies that will go directly against Caesar Augustus, who was also known in Roman culture as the Son of God. Julius Caesar, along with his uh, nephew and a uh, grandnephew and adopted son Octavian, who was later named Caesar Augustus, they belonged to the Julian tribal family. They claimed a millennium-old descent from the goddess Venus, the daughter of Jupiter, and her human partner, Anchias, uh, Anchises, a Trojan hero from the time of that legendary war against the Greeks. Their son was Aeneas, and it is through his son, Julius, that the Julian line claimed descent. And so think of Homer's classic works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, as the Old Testament and New Testament of Roman imperial theology. This 1,000 years before the birth of Caesar Augustus. So Borg and Crossan ask, 
If you wanted to oppose and replace one son of God born with a millennium-plus descent from the divinely born Aeneas, you would have to introduce an alternative son of God with a better-than-millennium-plus descent from, well, say, the divinely-born Isaac, as in Matthew, or better, the divinely-created Adam, as in Luke. But what is always clear, they continue, is that ancient genealogy was not about history and poetry, but about prophecy and destiny. Not about accuracy, but about advertising. So, Matthew and Luke, through their genealogies of Jesus, are, amongst other things, setting up a revolutionary scenario with the birth of Jesus that they're about to explain. He is, indeed, someone who will stand over and against the one the Romans call the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and rest assured, it will not go unnoticed. Next week, my friends, we get into the visitation uh, by the angel Gabriel to Mary as we continue to explore the first Christmas. In the meantime, give thanks for your own genealogy. Even if you can't go back to, you know, Charlemagne or whatever in the 5th, 6th century. But for the men and women uh, who have come before us, uh, the ones that we know and the ones that we don't know, for those that nurtured their families all the way down and helped shape your own faith, and life. Thanks be to God for our family, for our history, our heritage, for this series, and for the genealogy of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.